Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog. Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger in chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQblog.com. You can now hear OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is an award-winning and free news and talk mobile app available for your iPhone, iPad, Android phones and tablets, as well as BlackBerry and WebOS devices. To get Stitcher Smart Radio, visit your app store or go to stitcher.com forward slash OCDQ. Enter promo code OCDQ and the latest episode of OCDQ Radio will be waiting for you in your favorites. You'll also get free access to lots of other amazing shows too, which are always available to you for free, on demand, with no files to download and no syncing. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're going to discuss what regulatory compliance programs like Solvency 2 can teach us about data governance and data quality which is why I am pleased to be joined by a very special guest. Ken O'Connor is an independent data consultant with over 30 years of hands-on experience. Ken specializes in helping organizations meet the data quality management challenges presented by data-intensive programs, including data conversions, data migrations, data population, and regulatory compliance, including Solvency 2, Basel 2 and Basel 3, Dodd-Frank, and anti-money laundering. Ken provides practical data quality and data governance advice at his popular blog at KenO'ConnorData.com. Ken O'Connor, welcome to OCDQ Radio. Thank you very much, Jim. Pleased to be here. Regulatory compliance has been one of the primary drivers for proactive approaches to data governance and data quality, both in the United States and also all around the world. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was about Solvency 2 in Europe and what that has meant for regulatory compliance requirements for data governance and data quality. So could you give us a little bit of a background for some of our international audience who might not be familiar with Solvency 2? Solvency 2 is a particular requirement that is unique to the insurance industry. It's a European requirement, but it does apply to insurance organizations that do business in Europe. It's no different to what we would regard as common sense data governance or data quality management requirements. Basically, the regulator is now saying, it's now the law, that not only must the chief executive and the chief financial officer sign off the financials of the company, they must sign off that the data underlying the financials is as complete, appropriate, and accurate as necessary in order to come up with those financials. And in this case, it's to come up with the, the solvency calculations. The point I'd be making is that while the driver is unique, it's uniquely called solvency too, the requirement is just a common sense data governance, data quality management. From what little I know of Solvency 2, there's an interesting phrase that always stood out to me in terms of the, the data requirements needed to be complete, appropriate, and accurate. And one of the things that we struggle, I think, all across the data management industry is coming up with definitions of terms in terms of what we might call data quality dimensions. But in the case of Solvency 2, what do those three words actually mean? Complete, appropriate, and accurate? That's the 
$64,000 or the multi-million dollar question. Unfortunately, what has happened is that, uh, this is my opinion, the regulator has taken certain words and it has made them central to the requirements. Taking the word complete, for those of us in the data quality industry, complete would be typically a dimension of accuracy. But unfortunately, they've taken it out, uh, separated. And so you've got appropriate, complete, and then you've got accuracy. And we face challenges in which people are using terms based on their own understanding of uh, what they mean. And oftentimes, they're conflicting understandings. I use a very simple approach to explaining these terms. When I'm speaking at a conference, I like to involve people. So I ask for a volunteer from the audience, and hopefully you will be my volunteer today. Would you be happy to do that? I volunteer. Excellent. We're just going to explore these words of appropriate, complete, accurate. Do you enjoy food, Jim? Oh, most definitely. And do you occasionally cook? Not well, but I do occasionally. <laughs> okay, so if you just in terms of what might be a dish that you would be interested in cooking, one of the few meals I was actually taught how to prepare as a child was my grandmother taught me how to prepare what we used to call a boiled dinner, which was a traditional corned beef and cabbage, which my grandmother told me was a traditional Irish meal. So it had corned beef, cabbage, and then a variety of vegetables like potatoes and carrots and, and other things all put into a, a giant pot and boiled to create what we would call a boiled dinner. Excellent. So let's suppose you, you're now going to be cooking that particular meal and I'm your supplier of the ingredients. So how about if I was to bring along, in readiness for you to prepare your meal, chicken and some turnips? Would that be okay? The turnips potentially, but the chicken, no, not for that particular recipe. Why not? It's, it's, it's perfect quality, highest quality chicken. Well, I'm sure it's very high quality chicken, but I really want corned beef for this particular meal. Are you suggesting that the chicken might be inappropriate for cooking that particular meal? For this particular meal, yes, I would consider the chicken to be an inappropriate ingredient. Well, that's exactly the point of appropriateness. So in terms of solvency 2, the regulator is essentially saying that for the purpose for which you actually require data, make sure that the data that you are using is appropriate for that purpose. And it is literally as simple as that concept. If you're going to cook corned beef and cabbage and your supplier provides you with chicken and turnip, it's not necessarily appropriate for the purpose. doesn't mean that it's poor quality. It's just not appropriate for the purpose for which you require it. You mentioned, Jim, that you needed corned beef, cabbage, and there were a variety of vegetables. And turnip could be one. Um, could there be others? Potatoes and carrots were usually the other vegetables we used. So, well, let's suppose I said, okay, I can provide you with the turnip, the potatoes, and the carrots. Would you be able to go ahead and prepare the meal? With only those three ingredients? Only those three. Nope, I would be missing probably the key ingredient, which would be the corned beef. So, your ingredients would be incomplete? Correct. So, again, it's the simplicity of common sense. The regulator is saying there may be certain risks that you cover in your business. Well, please ensure that you have data for all of the risks that you're covering. It's that type of approach. Explicitly set out what you require and explicitly check that you have what you require. And these are just examples of the types of criteria under appropriateness and under, under completeness. 
under accuracy, there are a couple of other uh, sort of items that are dealt with. And let, let's deal with one of those. So when were you hoping to prepare this meal? I would say typically we would prepare it for a Sunday meal. So we would start cooking it in the morning. So if we wanted to pretend that today was Sunday, then I need to begin preparing it now for this evening's meal. So how about if I drop those ingredients over to you tomorrow morning, Monday? That would be a little bit too late. <laughs> and this is one of the requirements is that the data, uh, it's timeliness. It, the data must be made available in a timely manner. So they're the very simple concepts that are addressed by appropriate, complete and accurate. The other attributes are, are no more complicated. Just, just in terms of who needs to set out what. So you're the chef, but you've outsourced the supply to me. I'll have all those ingredients for you. I'll have them for you early on Sunday morning. And I'll provide you with, with a quarter pound of corned beef, two carrots, two potatoes, and a small turnip. Would that be okay for you, Jim? I guess if I was preparing a meal only for myself, but if I was trying to feed a family of six, then that would be the right ingredients, but not enough of them. Okay, so you'd have insufficient quantity or volume. And it's another of the attributes of, of the data that one might require, and specifically in terms of solvents to one of the requirements, because it is an actuarial process, one of the requirements is that there would be sufficient historical data made available. Someone's doing something like mortality risk assessment, and the requirement is to have 10 years of data in order to make an appropriate statistical assessment. Well, that's how much historical data one needs. So if you only have three years of historical data, well, that's, that's not enough. So it really is a common sense approach. So, but I'd just like to explore in terms of who needs to set out what. What do I need of you? I'm the supplier. Well, I need to be clear in indicating to you which ingredients I need you to supply to me. As the consumer of the ingredients, you need to set out exactly what you need. You need to set out exactly when you need it. You need to set out how much the quantity of it is. And then, you know, we could continue this, this item in terms of it, with food goes without saying that it would need to be fresh and consumable, all those types of things. But those exact same simple concepts apply equally to data. The point that we'd be making is that the people who require the data and are closest to the business process are the people who have the answers. They know exactly what they need and they know exactly how good they need it to be. They don't necessarily have all of the questions because the regulator is setting out questions in terms of appropriateness, completeness, accuracy. So it's an excellent blend of business and data quality specialists. The people in the business, especially actuaries, they actually check data on a day-to-day -day basis. It's as normal for them to check their data as it is for them to have breakfast. Whereas now the regulator wants to see that formalized. They want to see it readily accessed. So one of the particular requirements of Solvency 2 is that there is a directory of data maintained. And it's a directory of data used within the specific business processes. I don't know if this is extending the analogy a little bit too far, but is there some aspect of differentiating the quality of the ingredients versus the quality of the prepared meal? Because you as my supplier could provide me with high quality corned beef and high quality turnips, carrots, and potatoes, but I might not be a particularly good cook. Is that too much of a stretch of the analogy? No, I think that is an excellent question and a very, very important question. 
there are two aspects to proving the overall quality of a given business process. Uh, critically, it's the end result that is most important. And critically, in preparing a meal, it's the end result that is very important. But one separates the preparation of the meal from the actual quality of the ingredients feeding into it. In terms of the solvency do business processes, there are very sophisticated actuarial processes that have to be built into the engine, so to speak. So the engine has to be proven to be capable of taking data and acting on that data and producing the correct results based on that. Having proven all of that is a completely separate issue to, to verify that actual data being pushed through the engine is appropriate, complete and accurate. So it's splitting in the risk that the data professionals, and the data quality management aspect and the data governance aspect of Solvency 2, the risk that it's addressing is the garbage in, garbage out risk. So on the data side, we do not attempt to open the box, so to speak, or, or touch the engine. That's proved separately. Does that help clarify, Jim? Yeah, I think so. I guess I was trying to maybe delineate the possibility of having a poor end result because of poor quality from the outset. I mean, I might have had an appropriate provider giving me the appropriate ingredients, and I might have had a bad end result either because the process itself didn't prepare the meal well, or perhaps even though you provided me with the appropriate ingredients, maybe it wasn't the highest quality ingredients. Maybe there is another provider who could have given me higher quality piece of, of corned beef. We oversimplified our example, but maybe I would have multiple suppliers. Maybe I'm getting my carrots from one person and my potatoes from another and my turnips from another and my cabbage from another and my corned beef from another. And there might be multiple options and perhaps the end result is being affected by not going back to data, not collecting data from possibly the best sources to begin the process with. No, you're, you're making very good points there. You as the consumer person who best understands exactly what you need, if you were to actually go to the local market and hand pick all of the items, all of the ingredients that you wanted, then you would innately pick the right things because you would sense what's right based on your, your experience. It's when people start to outsource items or, or when someone says, right, I'm now going to require someone else to supply me with whether they be food ingredients or whether it be data. That's when the uh, specification of what exactly what's required becomes so important. And historically, those specifications have tended to set out, I need this particular type of data, and I need it in this format. But what has tended to be ignored somewhat is, and I need it to be exactly this good. It doesn't necessarily need to be 100% perfect, but maybe it needs to satisfy a particular rule where it's 95% accurate is acceptable for the purpose for which I'm going to use it. Those criteria need to be set, they need to be agreed, they need to be visible, they need to be assessed, and there needs to be evidence that that has been done. So that's what the regulations are moving towards. It's really to be able to demonstrate that you know your data, that you know what you need, you know what it should contain, you know what it does contain, you assess how good it is, and if it doesn't contain exactly what you said it should, then you have a process in place to manage that deficiency.
Besides Solvency 2 and other aspects of regulatory compliance are trying to assert accountability for the correctness of the data at the executive level, but where does that fit in in terms of the related notions of ownership and responsibility? I mean, who's really responsible within the organization for the data, for the process, for the, the reporting, for the compliance? Is that level of detail broken down in Solvency 2? It's not. Certainly the risk management area is expected to take ownership. Ultimately, the CFO has to sign off the financials and the CFO would be expected to ensure that processes are in place to ensure that the data is completed properly and accurately. My preferred approach is to focus on the processes that use the data. Just as our little analogy had you preparing a particular meal, so you're the person who has set out how good the data you need for your particular purpose. So if we take an example in which, say in terms of life and pensions, date of birth would be deemed a very important field in order to determine the age of people. So when are they going to be due for pension? In the same organization, the marketing department may be interested in the age of people because they'd like to send emails, promotional emails to people in different age groups. Marketing might be quite happy if the age wasn't available for 10% of customers. They wouldn't necessarily be happy, but they'd be saying, well, let's focus on the people that we have and let's get the marketing material out to those people that we can get it out to. But people who are trying to do mortality risk assessment would probably be very unhappy if they thought 10% of customers or clients on the database didn't have a valid date of birth at present. So this is very much a fitness for purpose definition and the people who own the particular business processes that require the data, we're expecting those people to step up to the mark and say how good they need the data to be. And then the suppliers of the data to step up and assert that they are providing the data of, of that quality. That it's brings some interesting different levels of quality or different requirements for the same data by different groups. Again, maybe I'm continuing to try to stretch the analogy too far, but in the case of, say, the potatoes and the carrots, I may have an internal user who wishes to use raw carrots for dipping in terms of maybe like a little party that someone's having, in which case the carrots really need to be very fresh and very crisp because they're going to be eaten without having been cooked first. Whereas if the carrots were a little bit older but still healthy, I could still use them for cooking because after they're cooked, any of the impurities will be removed from them. But those carrots might not be the best to serve raw. And then the same thing for potatoes. My quality requirements for the potatoes to go into my corned beef and cabbage dinner might be different than the quality of potatoes I would use to make chips, for example. So it's the same data, the same ingredients being used by different people for different requirements where in some cases it's sufficient quality, in other cases it would be not sufficient quality? That's absolutely the case. And increasingly we're going to see more regulatory requirements. So data that may well be perfectly okay at the moment and the suppliers of that data never had any complaints or they've had, never had any problems with any of the people using the data, suddenly a new requirement comes in, it's a regulatory requirement, and perhaps the regulator says, you're going to have to demonstrate that particular piece of data is 98% accurate or something of the sort. That changes the game. That changes the rules by which things have to be done. And suppliers are going to have to step up and improve matters. What we're seeing in the industry is that people in asset management who provide a lot of data into the insurance industry, 
they're now starting to see quality of the data that they provide. They see that as a value add and they're, they're beginning to differentiate themselves from the competition by saying, we can help you satisfy Solvency 2 requirements here because the quality of our data, we, we can stand over it and we can demonstrate how good the data is. And, and that's a big shift in the market. I can imagine it's definitely a big shift in terms of, again, the, the accountability that comes with having to you know, comply with a regulation like Solvency 2. Uh, one other aspect that, that came to mind for me in understanding the shelf life of data, I mean, some data attributes, like you had mentioned, date of birth, if once you capture that correctly, then you'll always be able to accurately reflect the age of the customer, which may be an important attribute for things like life insurance policies, for example. But there may be other types of attributes which are more variable, like, for example, income might be an important attribute also for determining the certain amount of coverage that is offered to someone. And that, especially for folks like us who are independent consultants, our income is very variable. And how do we know if we're looking at Jim Harris, someone who should be insured, if we have accurate, up-to-date income information? Go back to the ingredients metaphor. I mean, eventually, you could have really high-quality potatoes today, but they will go bad. They may spoil a few weeks or a few months from now. So how do we know that we're maintaining high quality just because we had it at one particular point in time? That's an excellent point you raise, Jim. Part of the requirement is one must specify the frequency with which the data is updated and the frequency with which the quality of the data is checked. So built into the regulatory requirements is the expectation that one has in place processes covering the definition of the data, the assessment of the quality of the data, and governance over all of those to ensure that appropriate decision-making takes place, that if an issue arises, that it is escalated to an appropriate level, and indeed the issues are resolved. So the, the ongoing quality of the data is very critical. Drawing us towards a conclusion, as you've been working with organizations and helping them understand the data governance and data quality requirements of Solvency 2, what have been some of the challenges that you've seen in getting people to maybe adjust their perspective on data and the way that they manage it in order to become compliant with these requirements? I think the major challenge is the, the point you, you raised, which was with regard to C-level understanding of, of the challenge. It's a real challenge for our industry. And if I can refer to Craig Newmark, who was the founder of Craigslist and visited Dublin a number of years ago, he wasn't speaking about data quality, but he made a point that in large organizations, the people at the top of those organizations often don't have the information that they need or the quality of the information available to them is often not as, as good as it should be. And one of the challenges is that people tend to tell their bosses what their bosses want to hear. So a big challenge worldwide is getting senior management to understand the importance, the value of their data as an asset and get them to move from the point where they simply assume that these checks are in place because as they quite rightly point out, they are successful organizations that are profitable and they have to move from assuming the checks are in place to actually insisting that they are seeking, as the regulator is seeking, seeking that people will actually demonstrate that these items are in place.
sometimes people have a rather cynical view of, of board level or seat level or senior management folks not understanding what's going on or not understanding the importance of data. But sometimes there's the information that may be presented to them may be presented to them by people who internally don't want to deliver bad news to the top of the organization for fear of don't kill the messenger. So if we only deliver good news to the upper levels of management and that's what they see, then they have every right to believe that everything must be going well. I think in general, everyone across the board is, is a little bit uncomfortable with transparency and accountability because if everything's going well, then transparency and accountability is a great thing because then you'll get a pat on the back and everyone will tell you you're doing such a great job. But if things are not going well, then transparency and accountability reveals the flaws in the process and the technology and possibly the people that need to be addressed. And then everyone gets afraid of being the person who gets blamed. And especially with the recent troubles in the global financial crisis that we're still coming out of, I think a lot of people were afraid of perhaps losing their jobs by accurately reporting information up the chain to the higher levels of the organization. So transparency and accountability has always been a, a great mandate in principle, but in practice, it gets a little bit messy when the human element is involved. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You know, I, I often say to people, say in terms of the, the annual accounts are being announced of the major multinational, they're going to speak with the various agencies and the analysts. I don't think any chief executive would stand up and say, I'm just about to share with you the annual results of major conglomerate X, Y, and Z. Uh, but before I do, I'd, I'd just like to, to say that there is a possibility that the, the data upon which these results are based uh, could be incomplete, inappropriate, or inaccurate. There's no way that they would ever say that because they don't believe it in the first place. They are fully confident, quite rightly, that the data upon which their figures are based is complete, appropriate, and accurate. My vision for the future is a time when all information and all data is accompanied in parallel with the provenance of that quality of that data. People don't necessarily have to refer to it or look it up, but they will be reassured to know that it is available. And a recent blog post that I did referred to and asked the question, do you, do you know what's in the data you're consuming? And it just took the analogy of the food packaging and the nutritional content that's on the side of packs. And we see it every day. We see it in every shop we go into. We see it on the cereal boxes on our table in the morning. We don't look at it most of the time, but it is reassuring to know that we can look at it and be told, well, how much salt is in this or how much sugar, etc. And, and, and then if we need, for some reason, if we've got dietary considerations that uh, we need to cut down on our sugar or cut down on our salt or some other thing, we can then refer to the food packaging and select food that is appropriate for our needs. Likewise, in the future, the time will come when people are selecting data for use, they will be able to see all sorts of attributes about that data and select the data that best fits their purpose. I love the analogy of the, the data content facts to the nutrition facts from your blog post because you're right, it is something that like most of the time you wouldn't particularly pay attention to it. But if you just came back from a doctor's office and he tells you to reduce the sodium and increase the fiber in your diet, then you might be noticing when you're going grocery shopping, picking up the packages and noticing what the sodium and, and fiber content of the food that you're purchasing has. And you take it at face value that that information is correct and, and you can use that to make good decisions. But there's also, and this happens 
a, a lot in the United States. There's some rather interesting ways that those statistics or those facts are put on the side of food, like the notation of something having low sodium or having no fat is something yeah. that's very open, like especially the no fat designation. It really doesn't mean that there's no fat. It means that there's a below a certain percent, like 0.5% per certain weight. You're allowed to call the food fat-free even though it's not. And what exactly low sodium means can also vary tremendously as well. So on the one hand, it's great that there is some type of qualitative measurements automatically available to us on food packaging. But I'm concerned a little bit about some of the fungible definitions that get assigned to those and if something similar could happen to data. Because in terms of saying that, well, this is of high quality, well, well, what exactly does that mean? And in the case of food, at least, there is usually a government agency that regulates a particular type of food, like the quality of meat, for example. So that would be an interesting future, but I wonder how much we would be playing the definition game again in, in terms of what high quality means in that regard. You're absolutely right. That is a risk that we face, but it would be a step up from where we are right now. I move in the, in the right direction, and I would definitely welcome it. There's a lot of common sense in the data governance and data quality requirements of Solvency 2, and they're definitely applicable to not just the insurance industry, and there's a lot that we can learn from them. This has been an excellent discussion. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on OCDQ Radio today. Jim, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can find links to the blog post summaries of every episode, ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes and a non-iTunes RSS feed, and a link to listen to OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. And you will find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, and email. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio. And until next time, may the data quality be with you always.